Welcome to Cooking the Books. I'm Vanessa, your host, and I'm glad you're here. Greetings at the end of National Jazz Month, my dear constant listeners. I hope all is well in your world and that the springtime winds and weather aren't driving you to destruction. As we wrap up April, I am so excited to be talking today about a book that, for me, encompasses the jazz age in this country. And as well, since we are segueing into the month of May, we all know what that month brings. Yes, the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> so The Great Gatsby was written by one of America's great literary lions, F. Scott Fitzgerald himself, that hard-drinking, hard-partying paragon of 1920s peccadilloes, who was just as famous for his marriage to the notorious Zelda as he was for his literary acumen. Now, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for men who enjoy their liquor, perhaps a bit too much, because if they're genuinely nice guys at heart, they will be the kindest and sweetest drunks you'll ever want to meet. My first love, Scott, was one of those boys, and since he was the one who actually turned me on to the works of Fitzgerald in the first place, I've always thought it was very serendipitous that I also fell in love with this book and its author. Now, if you haven't read this classic of American literature, here's a quick overview. So this book tells the story of self-made millionaire Jay Gatsby and his pursuit of Daisy Buchanan, a wealthy young woman whom he loved in his youth. The book is narrated by Nick Carraway, who recounts the events of the summer of 1922 after he takes a house next door to Gatsby's massive mansion on Long Island. Across the water from Gatsby's house is Nick's cousin Daisy and her asshole of a rich husband, Tom Buchanan. As the summer progresses, Nick is invited to attend one of Gatsby's wild and dazzling parties, and they strike up an odd friendship. Gatsby asks Nick to invite Daisy to tea, confessing he has loved her since his youth and that he still carries a torch for her. Daisy and Gatsby renew their love affair, and uh-oh, Tom soon learns of those trysts confronting Gatsby in a pivotal scene when all the characters are drinking madly at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. Daisy tries to calm both of the men down, but Gatsby insists that he and Daisy have always been in love and that she has never loved Tom. The fight escalates, and Tom reveals what he has learned from an investigation into Gatsby's affairs in his past. <gasps> that he had earned his money by selling bootleg liquor. Back then, I guess that was a very low-class thing to do. Gatsby tries to deny it, but Daisy, at this point, has lost her resolve to leave Tom. Gatsby and Daisy eventually leave together in Gatsby's car with Daisy driving. Or is she? On the road, she hits and kills Myrtle Wilson, the woman with whom Tom himself is having an affair, though Daisy doesn't realize her identity, and she only knows that Tom was having an affair in the first place. She's terrified, as of course anybody would be after you just hit somebody and killed them. So they keep driving, but the car is seen by witnesses. The next afternoon, Myrtle's husband, George, arrives at the house where Tom and Daisy live. Tom tells him that it was Gatsby who killed his wife. Way to cover for your wife there, Tom. Wilson then goes to Gatsby's house where he shoots Gatsby in his pool and then turns the gun on himself. A real cheery book, let me tell you. Joining us today is Dr. Eddie Tafoya, who you may recognize from some previous episodes. Dr. Tafoya is a professor of American literature. He's written several books. He's a stand-up comedian. He's a pretty funny guy. He's not too bad looking. And we always have very interesting literary discussions. We don't agree on everything, but the things we do agree on are that we absolutely adore this book. So without further ado, Hi, Eddie. Hi, Vanessa. So glad you're back on the show. I already it's great to be here. Yes, thank you. It's always nice to see you. We always have such interesting discussions on literature, don't we? We do. I know, I know. Well, so for my audience out there, what we are talking about today is that great American novel, The Great Gatsby. Uh, as I said in the intro, Eddie is a professor of English literature American and, literature. excuse me, professor of American literature. He has written several books. 
He is a very funny human being. Um, a lot about him I could say, but the important thing is that he is an expert in this field. Uh, Eddie, at the risk of sounding cheesy, what makes Gatsby great? What makes Gatsby great? What makes Gatsby great is that, and Fitzgerald tells us this in the middle of the book, he rises out of the platonic conception of himself. So he's this poor, this poor uh, farm boy, and his parents are shipless and poor, and and he he um, he is self-actualized. He, he becomes not self-actualized. He's a self-made man, and very much the tradition of the American dream. Do you think that? The overall concept that this book is sort of a representation of the American dream holds up, or do you think it's more meant to be a critique of the American dream? It's a representation of the American dream. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Um, in the 1920s, when this book was published, was written and published, the United States was going through one of its many transformations. Like now. Like now, exactly. Um, World War One had just ended. And there's a beautiful line in chapter one of the, of the Great Gatsby where our narrator, Nick Carraway, says when he returned back from the East, so he, he's lives, he lives in Minneapolis, <clears throat> he goes to New York, gets disgusted with everybody over there, and comes back to, uh, comes back to Minnesota. And he says, when I returned, I expected the world to be at standing at moral attention forever. And this is very much the attitude of 1920s America in the wake of World War I, because we emerged victorious from World War I, we emerged as a superpower, and more and more an economic superpower. And, and we wanted to be the moral exemplar to the rest of the world. And that's the reason that we we uh, launched ourselves into this wonderful time called Prohibition. And without Prohibition, you wouldn't have had gangsters like Meyer Wolfsheim, who was who backed Gatsby, who needed him back to Gatsby. Mm -hmm. So so it's a critique, it's a critique on America. Did I answer the question? Yeah, you oh, did. Okay. Do you so I just I thought it was an interesting because I just reread the book for the I don't know eighth or ninth time in preparation for the podcast, and it struck me that the how how the 1920s were at the time and and the the subtle critique of of the 1920s in this book. I don't really I understand it to a certain extent, but I don't because it seems like it's it's what's the word I'm trying to say. It's understandable that after, in the wake of a of a major world war and the upheaval after World War One, that people would want to have fun. They would want to focus on music and jazz and drinking and parties and dancing. And yet, the book, you know, it's a very thinly veiled criticism of it as well. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, um, it's it's very much a critique of America. Mm -hmm. I don't think just during the 1920s. Overall. I think it's a critique of America overall. And you have that wonderful trope, that wonderful motif that is the party. Well, parties, by and large, at least since the 1930s, no, since the 1920s, mm -hmm. uh, have stood for, have stood for a symbol of America. Yes. If you think of America as a new paradise, as the Puritans did, if you think of America as a new paradise, then paradise is this place where all your needs are met. There's no gap between desire and satisfaction. And at one of, if you're at one of Gatsby's parties, you have all these waiters uh, waiting on you, serving you food, serving you drinks, serving you, you know, there are beautiful women, there's dancing. There's no gap between desire and satisfaction. So that's an image of this Puritan idea of America, the new paradise. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I didn't thought about it like that. That is an interesting way to look at it. And you mentioned Nick Carraway. You know, for those of you out there, very few of you, I hope, who have not read this book, Nick Carraway is the narrator of the story. Uh, again, in rereading it, it kind of struck me that Nick has a very 
interesting relationship with Gatsby. There are times he seems to just adore him and there are times he seems to hate him. Um, do you think Nick is an unreliable narrator? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. He's an unreliable narrator. Good. Um, I'm glad I wasn't the only one. And at one point he says, everyone suspects themselves of being, at one time in our lives, every one of us suspects ourselves of uh, possessing one of the cardinal virtues. Mm -hmm. For me, it is this. I am one of the few honest people I know. Mm -hmm. He's not honest. No, he's not. He's not. He's not honest with himself. He's not honest with us. He's not even. He's not. He's not honest with Gatsby. Yeah, yeah. Nobody. Nobody is really very reliable in that story. I mean, nobody is honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gatsby. I mean, I, I think he's sometimes held up as sort of this. I don't know, anti-hero, but I think he's just a very. He's a very tragic hero in many ways. He's a tragic hero. Absolutely. Mm -hmm sort of the architect of his, I mean, he's, he's in so many ways, he's the architect of his own, of his own success, but in so many other ways, he's the architect, own, own architect of his own downfall as well. Yeah, but, but actually, I think the most uh, praiseworthy person in the book is Gatsby, because mm -hmm. I think he is honest with himself. Mm -hmm. He's sleeping with another man's wife, that's well, you not, know, nobody's perfect. That's not praiseworthy, but um, he is honest with him. So he's the most honest person. I think. Yeah, yeah. He's such a sad character. He's one of my favorite characters in literature. I am. Um, I just his 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 ongoing passion for Daisy. You know, I think we can all relate to having that that one person. You know, we hold a you know hold a tor carry a torch for throughout all of our lives. But that takes me to another question. Do you think he really truly loved Daisy in his heart, or did he love her more for what she represented and and as the book went on more for the fact that he couldn't have her no i think he loved daisy for what she represented i don't think he was in love with her mm -hmm. i think um well if you read deep into the story you see that that um well chapter one has this really interesting passage about tom buchanan daisy's husband mm -hmm. telling nick that the white race will be utterly submerged. Mm -hmm. That you have you read this book? It's called The Rise of the Colored Empires by this man Goddard. Well, that's a reference to a book called um, with a very similar title. I don't mm -hmm. want to call it off the top of my head now. But the author's name is Goddard. Mm -hmm. And Goddard was a Ku Klux Klansman. Lothrop Lothrop. Oh, it's Lothrop Stoddard is the guy's name. Okay. It's Goddard in the book. Okay. Okay. And this guy writes this, writes this book called The Rise of the Colored Empires, and mm -hmm. it talks about how people, either either African people or people of African descent or people of Asian descent mm -hmm. or Asians, are going to take over the world and completely submerge the white race. Well, what do we know about Gatsby? Well, we know that his name was, before it was Gatsby, before he rose out of the this platonic conception of himself, his last name was Gatz. Mm -hmm. Last two letters of T-E-Z. Mm -hmm. Like Berkowitz, like Horowitz, like Blitz. So the implication is that he was Jewish. He's Jewish. And then, and then Meyer Wolfshot, well, the gangster who puts up Gatsby, mm -hmm. who needs Gatsby, mm -hmm. well, at least needs Gatsby for a little while, uh, describes Gatsby as being a man of fine breeding. Someone I would take home to my mother and sister. Mm -hmm. That 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 tells us that he's Jewish. Mm -hmm. And then in the final confrontation at the at the hotel in New York, mm -hmm. Tom tells Nick and Daisy and Gatsby, I should let Mr. Nobody from Nowhere have sex with my wife. Mm -hmm. Next thing you'll know, we'll have will have intermarriage between the races. <laughs> and that's ironic because Tom, the whole book, is cheating on his wife. Oh, yes. He's a, he's a total brute. Yeah, it's a total. He breaks her nose. He breaks his, his mistress's oh, yeah. nose. Mm -hmm. uh, but the key words there, Mr. Nobody from Nowhere, you are nobody. You are nowhere because you are Jewish. Mm -hmm. Because you're an upstart. I love that term, upstart. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as you know, I study the Marx Brothers. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who's been five minutes with me knows that I study the Marx Brothers. Eddie, 
Did you study the Marx Brothers? I studied the Marx Brothers. Get out. Uh, there's a wonderful piece of where Tantino, the ambassador from this rival country, insults the president, President Rubens Firefly, played mm -hmm. by by Groucho Marx. And he calls him he calls him a worm. He calls him a swine. And Groucho doesn't Groucho gets upset. But it isn't until until he calls him an upstart. That he, um, that Groucho takes out his gloves and slaps him. <laughs> Swine, well, Groucho's character is obviously Jewish, so Swine should be a very, very big mm -hmm. insult. But what's going on here is that Tantino is telling Groucho, you don't come from old money, you are an immigrant in America. Well, the country is Fredonia, which was a 19th century nickname for America. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, you don't come from old money, you're an immigrant, you're an ethnic, you're of the wrong religion, therefore you need to sit down, shut up, and know your place, even though you're president of this country. You need to show your place. Mm -hmm. And that's why the word upstart is so, so insulting. Well, Gatsby, who comes, who is Jewish, who comes from a shipless farm people, who's poor, who's poor mm -hmm. is the ultimate upstart. Mm -hmm. Upstart means you 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 rise. You're a self-made person. You you start out poor and a pariah, but become rich eventually. Yes, and and have ideas above your station or above the station that people think you should be in, yes. regardless of your money. And where were we going with this? Oh, um, no, we uh, we were just talking about the whole. Well, I mean, you you had mentioned. Uh, Tom and, and his, his racial comments, and actually that is a good segue into the next question that I wanted to ask you. Do you think this is a racist book, or do you think it's just representative of people of its time and the well, mentality toward those people who are not white? No, I think it's just Yes, I, the eye of God. Yeah, looking over the Valley of Ashes. Uh -huh. With disdain. Well, the word pickle in German means loathsome. Oh, I and, did not know that. And Berg means township or castle. Mm -hmm. or, but it means it means a physical area of people. Mm -hmm. So it's a lone, loathsome. It, Dr. T.J. Eckelberg's eyes look over a loath, loath, loathsome um, Berg, mm -hmm. a loathsome community. And the words are T.J., the, the initials are T.J. Well, what does T.J. reference? Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson's idea of America, even though I don't think Thomas Jefferson fully understood his own idea, um, Thomas Jefferson's idea of America was a place where you cherish sanctity of the individual. It's the only what makes America so great. The reason I, one of the reasons I love America so much is because it is based on sanctity of the individual. Mm -hmm. You have the right to determine your life. Mm -hmm. You have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You have one person, one vote. And so, Tom, so that's a really wonderful image of Thomas Jefferson's uh, loathsome bird looking over, looking over the, the waste that is the Valley of Ashes. Mm -hmm. That's a comment on America. He's also, Eckelberg is also looking over uh, in America where somebody is kept out of the American dream, kept out of the American paradise simply because he's Jewish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, some of the most interesting symbolism of the book, in my opinion, is the, the T.J. Eckelberg and the, the eyes and the glasses. Um, I remember the first time I read the book in high school, and that, that was something that the teacher brought up. and. I thought, wow, I hadn't even thought about it. You know, when you're in 11th grade, you know, you're not thinking about deep symbolism of, of literature, but it it was one of those kind of aha moments for me. What, so what it's did always the teacher say? basically that that the eyes represented the eyes of God, well, but not but not the not the disdainful eyes of God. They disdain. Uh, I kind of got kind of came to me later. Sort of just something I started thinking. You know, God being judgmental and looking looking out over these poor you know these poor sad people that are you know living in this this town of ash, you know, representing the you know, absolute dregs of society, but yet they're 
they're they're people that obviously are needed by the so-called upper echelons in oh, order yeah. to keep you know the capitalist society moving. What, and for men like Tom, who you know keeps his little piece of you know something on the side. Well, that's a sign of wealth. Huh. Oh, in in what way? Having a little piece of something on the side? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, it takes money to have a mistress. I wouldn't know. <laughs> you never had a mistress? No, I don't have any money either. <laughs> no, my money. Uh, yeah, yeah. Your wife is your bling bling. Mm -hmm. No, I mean your your wife and your mistress are your bling bling. Yeah, that's interesting. And in this case, they're such polar opposites. Yeah. 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 Very sad. Huh. There's a uh, Fitzgerald is also chosen the. The rinds and the pupless halves of the lemons, limes, and oranges mm -hmm. that uh, that are discarded up after his parties. Yeah, after his parties, mm -hmm. with the people who are discarded and live in the Valley of Ashes, mm -hmm. and the throwaway concubine he has in Myrtle Wilson. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, very sad. She, she was. She was oddly enough. One of my favorite characters. Why is that? I think because in her own way, she kept Tom somewhat real. I mean, he was such an asshole. Yeah. But he did, in his own twisted way, care about her and love her. Obviously, not enough. But it gave him a it gave him more of a sense of humanity than anything else. What evidence do you have that he cared about and loved her? I. Well, I mean, he's broken up about her at the end. In I, I said in his own way. I didn't You're say right. that he it was gonna. I him. didn't say that you know he loved her or deep down he said cared about her. I mean you know she was his flame like you just said. Yeah. So you know, but he did have some level of emotion for her, and in my mind that made him that that human. Not much, but infinitesimal, infinitesimally yeah. human. It humanized him a little bit, and. It, it rounded out his character. I think otherwise he would have been just a very shallow, typical brute, you know, no intelligence. Old money. Exactly. Man of privilege, white man of privilege. White man Racist of privilege. white man of privilege. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so you know, Tom, eh. but he's still a despicable character. He's don't a, don't, well, don't yeah. get me wrong. He's he's a horrible, horrible character. He's so. a horrible character. Yes, he is. So speaking of horrible characters, we come to Daisy. I, I hated her. Why did you hate Daisy? Because she's a phony. I don't think she genuinely loved Gatsby. Oh, I think she did. Really? What evidence of this do you have, Professor Toya? <laughs> I will tell you, there is that wonderful scene halfway through the book where Daisy and Gatsby meet in Nick's apartment. Uh-huh. And Nick, Nick's cardboard bungalow, as he refers to Yes. It. And they go across the way to Gatsby's place. Mm -hmm. And Gatsby starts taking all these shirts out, like throwing them. Well, that's the movie. No, that's the book. Well, he, oh, they don't say that in the book. They just yeah, say he starts showing her all through the house. No, he throws them, and they and they walk down. All right. Well, you read it more than me, so I'm going to take your word okay. for that. No, I guarantee that. I believe you. I believe you. And the book goes scattered on the bed, and he starts pouring into them. And she says, I'm just so sad. I've never seen such beautiful shirts before. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it's not the shirts that are making her cry. We know from the episode that Baker uh, the day before Tom's and Daisy's wedding, that Daisy was drunk, was falling down sloppy drunk the mm -hmm. day before the wedding. And she's holding a letter from Gatsby in the bathtub. And she can't marry Gatsby because he's simply not rich enough. Mm -hmm. But she's drunk and she's crying because she really loved this man. Okay. And so when we get to the shirt thing, she's burning her face in these shirts and she's crying. She says that, man, I'm so sad. I've never seen such beautiful shirts before. What she was saying is, if I'd only waited, mm -hmm. I could have had the money and I could have had the man and I, I love. All right. I'll give you that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, you know, you, you, you were the subject matter expert on Gatsby, not me. So thank God we're not talking about Hemingway. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> But do you okay? So we already had that discussion. I don't know. I just I don't know. I didn't. Maybe she did love him in her own way, but and then obviously I'm looking at it from a more modern viewpoint. She just was very materialistic. And of course, she, she didn't right. care about her kid. You know, her, 
blessed precious as she refers to her child you'd only see the kid twice in the book which i suppose is typical of that time and those you know those those kind of people but no those kind of people yes yeah anyway all right well you make a good argument for it so i'm not going to argue with that all right I, I could if you want me to but no i won't so i know you and i have talked about this at length off uh, offline you know, what we consider the great, one of the greatest American uh, novels. I personally consider this the best great American novel, in my opinion. It's one of my favorites. Do you consider this the great American novel? I consider it the great American novel. Okay. It's right near the top of you. All right. I, William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Yes. Moby Dick, Sound of the Fury. Leslie Harmon's Simple Ceremony is really, really wonderful. And that takes place right here in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And then, um, Ken Kesey's Sometimes Great Notion. That one I've never read. Well, you need to do a podcast on that. I, I, is there food in it? Because that's the focus of the podcast. Yeah, there's food in it. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to have yeah. to. Wow, you didn't bring up Hemingway once. Are we done? No. We can keep on talking. It's my podcast. We can talk as long as okay. we want. What else, what else should people know about Great Gatsby? Well, because people should know mm -hmm. who's driving the car that killed Myrtle Wilson. Oh, it's Daisy. Au contraire. You think it was Gatsby? I know it was Gatsby. Well, how? Okay. You're turning all this literary theory upside down on me. How do we know? How do we know anything about the incident? Through Nick, our Nick. reliable narrator. And Nick is in love with somebody in the book. And it's not Jordan Baker. It's not Jordan Baker. Who is it? Gatsby. It's Gatsby. Yep. Uh, he reflects, he even tells people that much. When they're in the hotel New York, he says, I just remembered it's my birthday. And before me, I'm 30 years old today. That's mm -hmm. basically what he says. I'm just thinking of all, all the men I would meet over the next decade. <laughs> but that thought never crossed my mind when I turned 30. <laughs> I was not thinking of the men I would meet. And I'm sure you're not thinking about it now either, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then there's a well, it would certainly explain that whole love-hate relationship he seems to have with Big Gatsby. Right. And you know, then, and then reflective had, of, of his own conflict of, within himself. And then it's suggested that after the party, uh, he, has, he has sex with McKee, Mr. McKee. I'm going to have to go back and, and give it a much more careful read because that's the... I, I've never read it from that perspective. It's, I'm going to have to do I it. I can show you the passage right here in the book. Okay, well, here, find it for me since we're, since we're here sitting here. Okay. Listeners, so, you heard it here first. Nick Carraway is gay. And then he describes Gatsby as gorgeous. Well, yeah, that's true. And then... Jennifer. It just, to me, that's just such an indication of of what a good writer Fitzgerald is that he writes with such subtlety. You know, oh, I, I didn't absolutely. pick up on it at all. Absolutely. And then, uh, and then when he describes Jordan Baker, he says she's attractive. Mm -hmm. And he describes her purely masculine terms. He describes yeah. her as a young cadet with small breasts. Yes, that, that, I noticed that right away. And then he describes this girl from back in, in Minnesota with playing tennis and she has a faint mustache of Okay. Interesting. See all these insights. Where is this? Do you think Gatsby had any reciprocal feelings toward no. Nick? No. Okay. <laughs> and that's what Daisy represents. Yeah, Daisy America? represents. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Like, like that was, I was having this conversation. Mm -hmm. about all the beautiful women that Prince dated. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, that's the reason you've become Prince. <laughs> <laughs> not not for the artistic satisfaction, not for the music awards, not for the money, it's for the women, huh? It's for the women. That, all that's, right. That's what it's all about. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't think I'm an actor. No, okay. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. Right at the end of the chapter. Going down in the elevator, and Nick says, "Where?" And the key says, "Anywhere." And the elevator elevator boy says, "Keep your hands off the lever." 
Dot, dot, dot. What does dot, dot, dot mean? It means there are things going on that are unsaid. Okay. So we go from the elevator in his underwear. Okay. Sounds to me like some kind of a sexual tryst has just transpired. Very possibly. I, I, How could you read okay, it any other way? You're right. You're right. I've never, okay. but I've never, I've never given it a reading from a clear viewpoint. So. Okay. So Nick is an unreliable narrator. All I know about the accident that killed Myrtle Wilson is Nick's account mm-hmm. of Gatsby's account. Okay. So Gatsby could very well be lying, and Nick could very well be lying. Mm-hmm. And what Gatsby is saying, what Nick tells us that Gatsby says, is that he was. They were driving back to, to West Egg or mm-hmm. to East Egg. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gatsby wanted Daisy to drive mm-hmm. because it would calm her down. If you're driving. Which that does very, that is very suspect. Yes. That, that, that's suspect if you're talking about driving uh, a 2010 Lexus or 2021 Lexus with, that's fully automatic. And, you know, that. Would that really calm somebody down? No. But if you're driving a roadster in the 1920s, that makes no sense whatsoever. Myrtle Wilson comes out comes out of out of um, George Wilson's garage. She thinks that Tom's in the car. Mm-hmm. He comes to the side of the road, and Gatsby says, "Tom Buchanan took away my woman." I'm going to take away his woman. Mm. Okay. That's the only thing that makes sense. Okay. All right. So then why is there still this perception among so many people that it was him covering up for Daisy? He gives the he gives the implication. That was always my reading of it until you went and sort of made me think. Damn it. Why I, I can't I can't speak for anybody else, but it's, okay. it's fairly obvious. That, well, we can't trust Nick. No. We can't trust Gatsby. No. Can't trust Daisy. Can't trust Tom. Can't trust Jordan. But Gatsby obviously has a motivation to kill Myrtle. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's that's a very good read of it. I, I, Thank you. Yeah. And like I said, I'm gonna have to go back and reread it from all these different viewpoints. It's a wonderful book. It is. It really is. And one of the things that makes it so great is just the luminosity of Fitzgerald's prose. And he waited a moment longer, listening to the tuning fork that had been struck upon a stone. Mm-hmm. And then he kissed her. Gatsby believed in the green light and the orgiastic future that year by year receives with him. It eluded us then, but that's none that matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch our arms further, and then one fine morning. So we beat on. Boats against the current, going back ceaselessly into the past. That's just beautiful. Yes, I think that is. Hemingway couldn't write like that. Faulkner couldn't write like that. No, I think that's uh, one of the most beautiful closing lines of any book I've ever read in oh. my in my in my life. I've never read one better. No, never. Edward Abney has a really good one at the end of of the fourth progress. What is it? Um, it's this guy who's going home to die. Okay. Beautiful scenes in New Mexico, by the way. Okay. In this book, but he's going home. Going from Tucson, Arizona to Stump Creek, West Virginia to die. Okay. And the very last scene, and you'd have to understand the context, but mm-hmm. he's hiding in the bushes and he's watching his family get together for Sunday dinner. And his brother comes up, and this guy's about to die. He's mm-hmm. weeks away from dying. Mm-hmm. And he and he's he's been walking for days. He's hasn't bathed. He's unshaven, smelly. And his brother. We had a little glitch, folks. So we're going to start over with the passage uh, Eddie was talking about. The fool's progress. The fool's progress. Okay. What happens is this guy is he's going from Tucson, Arizona, across the country, to Stump Creek, West Virginia, to die. It's got beautiful descriptions of New Mexico. And I'm somebody, I believe, has written beautiful descriptions of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's. Unbathed, he's unshaven, he's been walking for days, he's 
is crouching down behind the, this, you know, these trees and watching his family gather at his brother's house for Sunday dinner. Mm -hmm. And his brother comes up behind him and he says, and this guy's getting ready to die. Yeah. And the brother comes up behind him and he says, we've been waiting for you days, months, years, decades. And Henry, the protagonist, tells his brother, Will, Will, I can't stay very long. And Will says, nobody said you had to stay, you damn fool. Nobody said you had to leave, neither. That's beautiful. It's, it's sad. very beautiful. Well, it's, it's very, it's poignant. It's poignant. It's just yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just then there's the ending of Tender as a Night, which is another fantastic uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald book. Uh, where six he's supposed to be in Buffalo at one time, and then he killed that family on the other. Then there's the ending of We could go on and on. Farewell to Arms. It was like saying goodbye to his cousin. After a while, I walked back. I know people talk so much about beautiful, wonderful opening lines of books, but I think there's just as much beauty to be found in the uh, the closing lines of many, many books. The Gatsby in particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and like two paragraphs before that is uh -huh. that beautiful passage about the Dutch sailor looking at um, looking on the fresh green breast of the new world. I can find it. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, Man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. Isn't that beautiful? That, that is beautiful. Oh, God. That's, that's, Fitzgerald's prose is luminous. It is. It's just luminous. It is. I'm not a big fan of the short stories, and mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of. Uh, Two earlier novels, The Beautiful and Damned, and This I Said. I mm -hmm. The is not in the Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there's just such an, uh, they're so beautiful and they just have such an underlying darkness oh, to yeah. them. I think that's what, why I've always been drawn to them. You know, they, they, they talk about these beautiful things and like beautiful houses and, you know, beautiful people and money and drinking and food and dancing. And it's all, it's almost like it's all this big facade and you scratch it or you pull the curtain away. And you just see this despair and this this sadness and this darkness. It's beautiful. But oh it's, yeah. It's, There's this wonderful description of Tom's man, Tom's and Daisy's mansion mm -hmm. in chapter one of the Great Gatsby, where he just describes this paradise. Mm -hmm. And then he says, after my second uh, glass of corky, but rather impressive claret. Mm -hmm. uh, so he has this great paradise. He's achieved the American dream handed down to us from the Puritans, but there are these little flies in the ointment represented mm -hmm. by those pieces of cork that are floating around in a clarity. It's, it's such a beautiful novel. It is. It is. Oh, and that was, that was a good segue when you talk about him drinking the clarity. So, you know, as you know, my podcast is about the different foods and uh, literature, and I, I wanted to ask you something that I, I ask pretty much all my guests. So if you could, not specifically about, you know, this, this character, but actually in your case, yes. So if you could have Jay Gatsby and F. Scott Fitzgerald over for dinner, what would you cook them and why? What would I cook them? Well, enchiladas, of course. <laughs> of course. Because this is about my expression myself, my expressing myself. Mm -hmm. um, what would I cook them? What would I cook them? Um, I think... I think they would, I think they would enjoy crusted trout, mm -hmm. fried in butter. Mm -hmm. Sounds good to me. With um, 
with the side of brown rice and either grilled artichokes or roasted roasted Brussels sprouts. Mm -hmm. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I think I think they'll like that. But with a mint julep to cap it off. Well, we'd had the mint juleps before. Yes, I would hope so. And then uh, another. What else might I serve them? I, I want to express New Mexico, of course, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm a New Mexican. Get out. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a New Mexican as well. I did not know that. Yeah. See, yeah. we're both learning new things about each yeah, other. New Mexico. Go I'm, figure. I'm a burqueño. Oh, God. Here we go. I'm from Albuquerque. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. I'm from here. I'm from Albuquerque as well. You really? What part? Uh, West side. Oh. Central and Interscope. Well, then here we are. I'm real glad you did in school. Okay, well, that's all right. Yeah, we go later. We'll go to McDonald's and fight. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd like nice shrimps, Dorothy. I think so too, or maybe something with oysters. Oysters? Oh, they'd love them. They'd mm -hmm. love the oysters. Mm -hmm. How do you prepare your specials? Uh, I don't eat raw oysters. I I can't stand the texture. It's like not. So what yeah. I always do is I uh, I bake them, and I put breadcrumbs, fresh parsley, garlic, and parmesan on top. Oh, that they good. are divine. Good, yes, and and I don't, I'm not a white wine drinker much, but they are wonderful with a uh, really uh, cold Sauvignon Blanc. Well, the only Hemingway book I like. Then I have to go out and buy oysters and my wine because. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a future blog post. So I may I may have to have you over for that and then we can discuss uh, the works of Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Hemingway was a genius. Mm. Misogynist genius. I, again, I think we've gone over this a few times. I disagree with you. That's fine. But we're, I, I we're think, digressing anyway because we're talking about F. Scott. Post 1920, 1938 Hemingway. I, I'll agree with you. Pre 1938 Hemingway. Different story. All right. I may have to go back and, and read it with that perspective in mind, but or not. Maybe I just won't. Maybe I'll just hang on to my my opinion about okay. Fitzgerald and Fair go enough. back and reread a F. Scott Fitzgerald instead. Yeah, I have read Tenorism. I oh, love that book. I love yes, that book too. It scares the shit out of me. I can't say that. I guess you can say you can say bad words on this podcast. I say fuck all the time. Okay. Well, I already told you this is my podcast. I can do or say whatever I want. It is, isn't it? Yes, it really is. Now, talk, I mean, that's a book in which the uh, the darkness isn't really hidden. It's, it's the, it, the despair is right well, on the surface of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it just, I think what makes it is such a good book and so so full of despair is that I mean it, it's just so nihilistic in its own way like there's not any real way out of that right. lifestyle they've chosen you know it's just essentially drinking themselves to death drinking themselves to death and cheating on each, well, cheating on each other do you think that was a pretty that was like a thinly veiled uh, biographical sketch of his marriage of Fitzgerald's marriage to Zelda I don't think it was in the nose. You think it was pretty much on the nose? <laughs> well, that, yeah, it was on the nose. Mm -hmm. It was on the nose. Yeah. And, um, well, Fitzgerald didn't have an, uh, have an affair with a... Uh, that you know of. That I know of. Why? Fitzgerald didn't, didn't have an affair that I know of mm -hmm. with a Hollywood starlet. He, didn't, mm -hmm. he wasn't running around with a, yeah. you know, with a teenage movie star. But he did have a long affair with Sheila Graham, a Hollywood gossip columnist. And then Zelda had an affair with Tommy, well, in, the, in Fender's Night is Tommy Barton. Mm -hmm. But he was a French, uh, a French or Spanish fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. And F. Scott was devastated, as anybody would be. Did she have her affair first? Yes. And oh, that yeah. way he had his? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, she was in a mental hospital, and he was in Hollywood. Yeah, she had she had a lot of other problems besides this. Yeah. Well, I think the drinking exacerbated it. I mean, these for folks certain. were notorious for yes 
for driving around New York City, uh, sitting on the on the roofs of cabs. Yeah. And one point, they were at a party in New York, New York City, where they collected all the women's purses at the party, took them into the kitchen, and boiled them. Oh my God. And wow. You know, Woody Allen has uh, that great that great bit about the lost generation where he says. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald had just returned from their wild New Year's Eve party. It was April. Nice. <laughs> that was great. Well, is there anything else you want to share about the great guest? I could go on and on and on and on, but I won't. Okay, well. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is a My lot of pleasure. fun. It's always fun having you on the show, talking about literature and drinking and food and, and you know, just as a, as a little, you know, end note to the lost generation is as wild and crazy and ultimately nihilistic as they were, they sure had some fun, didn't they? They had fun. But... Yes. Um, but the, Not from but the real such, joy so, of life. Artistic history. Mm -hmm. you, you, you were playing Glenn Miller at the beginning, mm -hmm. and Duke Ellington was coming into his own then, mm -hmm. the Marsh Brothers, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Harlem Renaissance, mm -hmm. um, of course, The Last Generation, William Faulkner. Um, it was just a wonderful, vibrant artistic time. It's interesting because it, it it's sort of a dichotomy, they're sort of dichotomous with one another. You have this this birth of all this creativity in the arts and literature and music, you know, jazz. And then, you know, the flip side of it is this, like you said before, you know, this, this despair, this underlying yeah. despair that either gave, you know, gave rise to this creativity or was in response to it. Right. Right. It makes you wonder if it takes times of great trial mm -hmm. and great tension to create, to create great art. Yes. Kind of makes you think what kind of uh, what kind of art might come out of the uh, past two years of yeah. this insane pandemic and crazy yeah. war with uh, against Ukraine that we're dealing with. And then America is drifting. Well, America is going through what I believe is the final the final stand of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I think that's what Trump's all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. It's a time of great, great upheaval, but what, what is, what's the ancient Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times? Yeah. Is it Chinese or is it Irish? <laughs> I've heard German, Chinese, Irish. May you live in Irish. Uh, let's call it all of them and call it a day. Yeah, but, but, but what, what time in our history is that? And that's, that's a very good argument, exactly. Yeah. It does, uh, I, I'm sure every generation that's gone through major upheavals like ours has you know, thought of it as the end of times, end times. Oh, yeah, people always think this was. Yeah, I know my dad, um, may he rest, uh, talked about that kind of mentality when he came back from Vietnam. That there oh, was yeah. just such a an attitude of, of this is the end of everything, you yeah. know, because so many cultural mores were being turned on their on their heads. Yeah, and that was very much the mood mm -hmm. of um, the 1920s. Yeah. Fitzgerald and Hemingway became the best friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess we should try and keep perspective yeah. on what we're going through now and look at it through that lens as, you know, every generation goes through that. It's hard. It's hard. Well, to, I, I, it feels like such a scary time right now. And I wonder how many people are going to get hurt. I know. Yeah. That's the worst part. You would think, and you know, and there's obviously, you know, as long as there are human beings, there will always be war. But you would hope that by well, this you time. You don't, you don't know that. Well, you don't know that. That's true. I don't know that. Some people just seem so inclined to being the aggressor and the oppressor. And I think that's yeah, so much of what but, we're seeing. But you know, 150 years ago, nobody nobody thought of air travel. True. You true. Know? You're right. You know, you have the future's infinite possibilities. Right? This is true. This is true. You're absolutely right. Well, good. You owe me five dollars then. <laughs> How about I just cook for you instead? You, you this can is cook a cooking for me. podcast. You can cook for me. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Eddie Tafoya, for being on my podcast. It was a pleasure having you over, as, as always. It was a pleasure being here. Like I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, combining the Jazz Age month of April with the oncoming month of May and the Kentucky Derby, 
inspired me to recreate a famous cocktail that the characters are swilling in the heat of the summer in New York when Gatsby and Tom have their infamous confrontation. So in honor of the Kentucky Derby and my true, true love for Jay Gatsby and this book, here is a lovely little recipe for that old Southern favorite, a mint julep. This method, which worked very, very well for me, serves one, so feel free to increase the ratios as you need. And for this drink, you will need one highball glass, one spoonful of granulated sugar, one spoonful of water, seven to eight fresh mint leaves, enough crushed ice to fill your highball glass, a bourbon whiskey of your choice. Now, I love Maker's Mark, so that's what I used here, but you can use whatever your little heart desires. You'll also need a dash of nutmeg and a few more fresh mint leaves for garnish. And this is what you do. Add the sugar to your highball glass and add the water to just dampen the sugar. Don't souse it. And going into this, just be aware that this drink is truly for a bourbon whiskey lover since the amount of sugar really doesn't cut the liquor flavor. So use a bourbon you really like or add a little more sugar and a bit more water. Next, you wanna add in the mint leaves and muddle them a bit if you have a cocktail mallet or muddler. If you don't, you can use the back of a spoon, which might take a little bit longer. But basically the idea here is that you want to release the oils in the mint. Then you wanna add three or four more fresh mint sprigs to the glass and put your crushed ice on top. Essentially, you don't want there to be room for anything in the glass except bourbon. Did I mention this drink will knock you on your ass? It will. Fill the glass with bourbon whiskey. It's actually a really pretty color if you hold it up in the sunlight. And it has to be said, if this amount of bourbon freaks you out, which it could, use half that amount and add in a bit more water. It won't taste the same, but you also won't find yourself lying on your kitchen floor drunkenly singing my old Kentucky home. Now that that's ever happened to me, I'm just saying it for your sake. Oh, the sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home. Young folks roll on the floor. To finish off your drink, go ahead and add a small dash of nutmeg over the top which takes this cocktail to another level of flavor and garnish with the remaining mint leaves. And there you have it, a classic mint julep, which should ideally be sipped while on a lovely veranda somewhere, watching ponies race while wearing a really obnoxiously decorated hat and being admired by the suave Jay Gatsby himself. At least that's how I would do it in my fantasies. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Cooking the Books. I again want to thank Dr. Eddie Tafoya for sharing his expertise and insight into this wonderful book, as well as his humor. You can learn more about Eddie's work by visiting his website, the link for which is in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll probably love my blog. So head on over to foodinbooks.com. That's F-O-O-D-I-N books.com and check it out. There's lots of great content there. You can also like me on Facebook or follow me on Instagram or both. The links to both are in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>